This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Welcome in our second episode of the week. The show before the show podcast from MILB.com arrives post-draft, or at least post-night one of the 2020 Major League Baseball first-year player draft. My name is Tyler Mon, Sam Dykstra in New York City, uh, which is ordinarily a, a hotbed of, of draft uh, occurrence, and uh, sort of, I guess, the, the New York area. was supposed to be in Omaha this year. Uh, now it was basically just on the internet, and uh, and we all got to follow along. Hi, Sam. Hi, Tyler. Yeah. Um, hello to you from the Internet, which I guess is the new place <laughs> of the MLB draft. Uh, it was held on MLB Network and it was held on ESPN. And um, you guys will be getting this on Friday. So rounds two through five will have happened. We're not going to cover those quite yet. I'm sure we'll get into those later and um, maybe talk about some surprises or some farm systems that got really strong in the, in the later rounds of this year's draft. But we're just going to focus here on uh, the first round and the competitive balance round A. Uh, but yeah, it was, it was a weird atmosphere after being the last being the last couple of years at Secaucus, New Jersey for the draft and, and feeling the energy of the room and then just being here in my own living room where, you know, there there's significantly less energy. There's not, uh, you know, Xavier Edwards thanking his parents over to the side or, um, you know, some of the other cool draft moments that, that I can remember the last couple of years. It, it, it was definitely a different atmosphere, but, um, you know, glad we have actual baseball news and natural baseball transactions to talk about and some really exciting stuff happened. Uh, last night so we'll get into it here yeah let's dive into it we uh we talked earlier this week about what we kind of anticipated we might see last night and uh there were no surprises at number one as a big guy fieri fan or uh guy fieri is a big fan of him spencer torkelson uh went number one overall to the detroit tigers the uh corner infielder out of arizona state drafted as a third baseman he becomes the first college corner infielder in 22 years to be taken first overall he was also the first uh non-drafted high school player to end up going first overall out of college since, I believe, the 1970s. Um, Spencer Torkelson is kind of the guy that everyone expected to be there. I think at the the beginning, even of the college season, most people would have had him as the odds-on guy uh, to be number one overall. He goes to the Detroit Tigers. A couple of surprises after him. Heston Kierstad, an outfielder out of Arkansas, goes to the Baltimore Orioles at number two. Max Meyer right-handed pitcher from the University of Minnesota goes to the Marlins at number three. Texas A&M's Asa Lacey goes to the Kansas City Royals. We'll go through the top ten here. Uh, Vanderbilt shortstop Austin Martin to the Toronto Blue Jays at number five. Emerson Hancock, a right-handed pitcher out of the University of Georgia. He goes to the Mariners at six. Nick Gonzalez, the uh, terrifically talented shortstop from New Mexico State. He goes to the Pirates at number seven. Then two high school players off the board at eight and nine. Robert Hassel, uh, an outfielder out of uh, Tennessee High School. Uh, Thompson's Station Tennessee Independence High School. He goes to the San Diego Padres at number eight. Spruce Creek High School product Zach Veen out of Port Orange, Florida goes to the Rockies at nine. And then Reed Detmers, a left-handed pitcher from Louisville, goes to the Angels at ten. Uh, the conversation, obviously, Sam, all around Spencer Torkelson. 
going into last night, although he did say he did not get a call from the Tigers before they took him, and that scared, quote, the living crap out of him. Uh, but we, we all knew that was coming. But some other interesting selections in the in the opening 10 picks in that first round. Yeah, let's just you know harp on what Spencer Torkelson adds to the Tigers here. One strength of the Tigers right now is certainly in their pitching. We've talked plenty about Casey Mize, Matt Manning, Tarek Skubal being a, a pop-up prospect for them. They've also got Alex Fado and Joey Wentz. A lot of guys who we expected to be knocking on the door of the majors this year. In Spencer Torkelson, they get what they the tw- Tigers Twitter account itself called an impact bat. Um, the best power in this class showed he could hit all three years, two and a half years really at Arizona state uh, finished with a 337, 463, 729 slash line. He hit four- 54 homers in 129 collegiate games. Uh, the, the only surprising thing about him going to the Tigers is that they announced him as a third baseman. Uh, everything I had seen before the draft is that he was going to be locked into first base. Maybe there was the potential that a team, probably Detroit, that was going to take him, could move him to left. Um, he's a little bit more athletic than an Andrew Vaughn, uh, somebody the White Sox took in the top five picks last year. Uh, there was the potential that he could see another position just to try to get more value out of him. If you get, put a guy at first base he's gonna have to really hit spencer torkelson can really hit he's also right-handed so he's gonna really really have to hit he can do that in time but the fact that they want to give him a little bit of time at third base was interesting he seemed all for it he said you know just give me a bat and a glove and i'm gonna try to win you a ball game uh so you know i wouldn't be surprised if this is something that they continue to harp on with him if he's hitting 310 320 with 20 homers at at the midpoint of next season and everybody's like okay Torkelson's ready they can say oh wait we want to get him a little more time at third base instead of just moving him over to first where he's probably going to end up anyways Um, so that was interesting there but the real surprises came like Tyler said at two and three Uh, this draft really felt like it had a big three Torkelson Torkelson Asa Lacey and Austin Martin and those other guys didn't make it into the top three. The Orioles kind of surprised everybody by going with Kierstead, somebody with prodigious power himself coming out of Arkansas. Um, we'll see what happens with his signing. Uh, you know, they they claim to like him enough, and everybody kind of also assumed that maybe they cut a deal with him and they're going to spread some of those savings around. The Orioles being part of a rebuild right now need to get as much talent as they can, but it felt like Lacey or Martin were such good talents that you would want to add to that mix and get another potential star like they got last year with Lee Rushman at number one. We'll see what Kierstad can do. I mean, the, the power is very good. He showed that. At, at Arkansas. Um, we'll see what the the hit tool is going to be. He's got somebody who struck out a decent amount at the college ranks. That's only going to get worse in the pros. Uh, but he can play right field. He's got a good arm. He's going to be a corner bat. That's a, a foundational piece. So we'll see how that works. The Miami Marlins going with Max Meyer. Again, putting Martin and Lacey off to the side. Max Meyer is one of my favorite players of the draft. I brought him up in our preview the other day. Uh, If he was two or three inches taller, he probably would have been in the conversation for one of the big three spots. He ends up at number three here anyways. His slider and fastball are both plus-plus pitches. He's just six foot, so there's a lot of worry that he could end up being a reliever someday just because of durability concerns. Uh, But if he shows that stuff, he could climb very quickly and – you know, you'll, you want to bet on stuff as much as you can. Uh, there's going to be a real debate. I don't think he's quite there in ter- terms of being uh, usurping, excuse me, 
Sixto Sanchez as the top pitching prospect in that Marlins system, but they get somebody who could climb very quickly if you just stick them in the bullpen, or it could be a very, very valuable starter with two elite pitches. That's something you want to bet on if you're the Marlins. Lacey falling falling to the Royals at number four. Uh, I'm sure the Royals weren't planning on that happening, and I would have loved to have seen the debate in their draft room over Lacey versus Martin once they realized both of that, those guys were going to be there. I'm a little surprised they took Lacey just because two years ago we saw them go so heavy on college arms in the draft. Brady Singer, Jackson Kawar, uh, Chris Bubich, who was on the show just a right. couple weeks ago. Um, you know, they, they have so many arms in that system, all from the college ranks to the point where you might want to think about going to other positions but you know when you're drafting number four you take the best talent available and you figure it out later uh so we could be looking at a day some time even more so now than we thought uh just a couple days ago that the royals could have an even better homegrown rotation for years to come which is huge uh for that organization that allowed Martin to follow the five with the Blue Jays, and that's a really interesting fit in itself. If we think anything about the Blue Jays right now, it's that they are really invested in young talent, especially on the infield. Um, Bo Bichette and Vladimir Guerrero Jr. are going to be two pillars of that organization. Kevin Biggio is just a little below them, but he can also play the infield. And then Nate Pearson's knocking on the door. We fully expected him to make his major league debut. Maybe he still will when we get to baseball. Um, but it seemed like that infield was set. But adding Austin Martin to that, you know, he played center field at Vanderbilt. He played second base. They announced him as a shortstop. I'm sure they're going to try to make that work. But the fact that he has some defensive versatility means they're going to find a place for him no matter what, because he can really hit. He's got speed. Um, he's, you know, he's not going to strike out much. He takes his walks. Uh, all the pieces are there for him to be a quick climber. And I'm going to really be interested to see how he fits as a puzzle piece. But if you're the Blue Jays and you're sitting there at number five and wondering what are we going to do uh, here with all these other guys who have dropped, having Austin Martin, who some people thought was an even better prospect than Spencer Torkelson just because he can do so many different things instead of just the one thing which is hit. Uh, Austin Martin following to the, the Blue Jays at five was huge for them, and I can't wait to see what they try to do with him now that he's in their system. Sam, explain to people, um, we're so used to the the 40-round draft, obviously, and um, the, the signing process and spreading bonus pool money around and all that. Uh, Major League Baseball slicing the draft to five rounds this year has changed everything when it comes to that uh from bonus pools and slot values uh and such there is now a cap on the amount of money that can be given to any player who is signed uh after this draft is over meaning the undrafted players um there is a twenty thousand dollar limit on bonuses for non-drafted free agents which presumably is going to push a lot of guys to college uh or back to college perhaps um but what what is the biggest difference when you try to explain to people what stands out most about how the money gets spread around this year among these five rounds what are people going to see that's different ordinarily that bonus pool money goes through the first 10 rounds of the draft yeah so it's going to be really interesting just to see the the equations that come into place here i mean we, we talked about it before with the orioles and taking kirstad they have the biggest bonus pool of anybody so it felt like they could take just the best talent that they saw on the board and again maybe they saw that in kirstad you know i'm not involved in those conversations but um when you have the biggest pool you want to think like what big swings can we take later and seeing guys drop with it only being five rounds there's less of a chance of somebody dropping to the sixth or seventh because that just doesn't exist and once you're out of the five rounds completely uh if you're 
a college junior, if you're a high school player, if you're a JUCO player who thinks, no, I can actually do better than this, there's no reason for you to sign for only $20,000. You Even as a college junior, you could come back next year, tear the cover off the ball, show improved stuff if you're a pitcher, and sign. And even though you have a little leverage, you might still get a $50,000 signing bonus, which is two and a half times better than 20000 this year. Um, so, yeah, I, I think it, what we're going to see in rounds two through five is fewer guys dropping. Um, if if you if you're a first or second round talent, you're going to be taken in the first or second round normally. Now, there's some picks here that that were befuddling in that way. Nick York with the Red Sox was a really interesting one. They claim they had some really good grades on him. And it seemed like to me as a group for the Red Sox who don't have a second round pick, they made this to potentially save on York put that money elsewhere on their third and fourth and fifth round picks uh, and make some bigger swings there. I would have preferred if I were them to take a big swing there because you don't have the second round pick to make up for that talent. Um, but with just with fewer picks, the the strategies here are going to be so different and divergent. And some teams s- seem to go safe. Some teams really went for it. The Tampa Bay Rays uh, taking Nick Bixco was hilarious to me in a way because Nick Bixco – for those of you who don't know at home, was actually supposed to be eligible for the 2021 draft coming out of high school. Um, he's still only 17, but he just qualifies for this year. Decided to graduate high school a year early. Now he's eligible for this draft. Could have been the top pick next year if he had just been able to show uh, his stuff for a little while longer. He comes out of a Pennsylvania high school. He didn't get to pitch this spring really in front of evaluators. Um, eligible this year. The, the Rays come in and swoop them when everybody else was like, oh, w- maybe we won't do that. We don't want to take too big a, a risk with that type of right-handed high school pitcher. Uh, the Rays adding him to their mix is fascinating. And, you know, a couple of years down the line, we might look at that and say, how do the Rays keep getting guys like this? Well, they they draft Savily. I'm going to go with Savily as a word. Savily. Savily. Yeah. They make savvy picks. How about that? They show off. They make savvy picks. They're savvy. Um, yeah. What else beyond those those first ten picks, Sam? There are uh, a lot of um, really cool stories. Uh, there are some really interesting picks. Uh, obviously, you, you mentioned Tampa Bay. Ed Howard maybe is one of the coolest stories in this draft. Uh, a Chicago native who led uh, a West Chicago team to the Little League World Series back in I think 2012. Uh, he goes to the Cubs in the first round as a, a Cubs fan growing up out of uh, Mount Carmel High School. Um, there are some other very interesting selections. The New York Mets, who have been dragged constantly over the last couple of years for giving up Jared Kelenic. They get a potential very high ceiling outfielder in Pete Crow Armstrong at Harvard Westlake, which is one of those schools that we talk about so often in uh, in the high school talent that it produces. Um, the San Francisco Giants pick a catcher. They have Buster Posey in the majors. Now, obviously, he's in sort of the twilight years of his career, but they've got Joey Bart in that system. They go out and get Patrick Bailey from uh, North Carolina State. Um, there's some really interesting selections in the, the middle and later stages of this first round. Yeah, and, and I, I'm glad you brought up Ed Howard. I don't know if anybody saw this. I retweeted it uh, the other day, but you, you brought up his time in the Little League World Series. There's this great video of Theo Epstein saying, like, you guys keep doing what you're doing. Uh, and then he says, go to college and we'll draft you in 2023. But apparently <laughs> he was just missed the date by three days. And Ed Howard doesn't need to go to college because he's been that good. Uh, I love that story so much that that's really, really cool. Um, you know, guys getting to play in their hometown, potentially there's a lot of road 
there's a long road ahead of Ed Howard. He has to need he has to start hitting really well to climb up that Chicago system. But him going to a Chicago team is really neat. Um, what I want to point out is the Milwaukee Brewers getting Garrett Mitchell out of UCLA at number 20. Um, Mitchell, I think he was ranked number six by MLB.com. Uh, very toolsy, plus plus speed. He's got a really strong arm. He's a great bet to stick in center field. Uh, he should also be a plus hitter. He makes lots of contact. Only struck out three times in 73 plate appearances this spring. Kind of a small sample, but still, that's pretty good. Uh, he just needs to hit for a little bit more power, but all the other pieces are there, and it sounds like the raw power is there as well. He fell because he has type 1 diabetes, um, you know, that's a, that's an, a, uh, that's a health condition that he's going to have to deal with for the rest of his life. Um, you know, makes him a little bit of a question mark from a health standpoint, but he's seemed to manage it well throughout his life, uh, managed it well at UCLA and the Milwaukee Brewers are a system that we said was the worst in baseball coming into this season. Um, they don't have a top 100 prospect currently. Bryce Terang is a good player. I think we're all excited about what he can be. He could certainly crack that top 100 once games get going again. Um, but for them to get somebody like Garrett Mitchell, a top 10 talent in this draft, just fall to them at, at 20 is a huge opportunity for the Brewers. And they need to start doing this uh, to rebuild that system. We'll, we'll see what other picks they can pick up in later rounds. But this was a, certainly a great start for them there. And uh, I had a couple of people joke with me about the Dodgers pick at 29. Um, Bobby Miller out of Louisville. Got huge velocity, six foot five righty, can hit the high 90s. His slider's an above average pitch. But a lot of people were joking with me. It was like, okay, so when does Bobby Miller become a top 25 prospect in baseball? Um, I don't know if it's quite there yet. Uh, you know, there's a reason why he fell. This was about the range we were expecting for him. Um, and, you know, he does have some control issues that could lead to a future in the bullpen. Uh, but the Dodgers are just so good at developing pitchers and developing players overall that it wouldn't be a surprise to see that, you know, Bobby Miller can throw hard and he's got the slider. All we need to do is make sure he starts throwing it in the zone with more regularity. And the Dodgers know how to do that. And it wouldn't be surprised to me if we see him be a steal in the same way Walker Bueller looked like a steal a couple of years ago. One other great um, storyline out of the first round. Cleveland at number 23 took Carson Tucker, a shortstop out of Mountain Point High School in Phoenix. And uh, Carson Tucker is the younger brother of Pittsburgh infielder Cole Tucker, who tweeted six, seven years ago uh, a video of the, a then very young Carson Tucker taking swings in a cage and said he's going to be a first rounder someday. And then uh, in 2020, he was pretty cool stuff uh, from a big brother to a little brother and a little brother uh, making the, the dream come true. So um, all of the capsulated recaps uh, of the first round of this 2020 MLB first year player draft are up at MILB.com right now from Sam. You can also pester Sam with all of your questions. He is on Twitter at Sam Dykstra MILB. Uh, ask him everything. Ask him how soon your favorite team's draft selection will be in the major leagues. Just hit Sam with every question. He has all the answers. And uh, if they are wrong, uh, it's not, uh, none of it is binding. So, you know, just uh, ask him everything you can conceivably think of. Um, Selling is this selling good idea <laughs> to you? Are you are you on board with that? I'm just gonna volunteer you for all of it. <laughs> I'm gonna take your silence. Yeah, I mean, it's funny you say that specific question. Well, it's funny you say that specific question just because like the tool shed I'm writing on I'm writing right now is who has the quickest path to the matrix. Yeah. So, so 
I feel like I I am kind of answering that question, so uh, maybe I'll just tweet out, read the column if you I want told to come you. to me with questions. Sam like knows. That. Sam knows it all. Yeah. Um. And uh. And with that, we are uh, gonna wrap up this first segment. Um. Uh, but we have so much coming up for you on this week's episode of the show before the show, including a conversation just around uh this brief pause with last year's top overall selection in the 2019 MLB first year player draft, Adley Rutschman, the former Oregon State Beaver and current Baltimore Orioles top prospect, uh, a guy who we really had a lot of fun talking to uh, last week actually, uh, or a week and a half ago now um, and uh, got a chance to catch up with Adley and talk about what he's been up to uh, over this strange time that we all find ourselves in. Uh, the segment after Adley, we are going to be hearing from uh, a longtime minor league radio voice, Adam Giardino, who's come up with a, a very cool initiative uh, in light of so many of the events that are currently going on uh, around the United States. We uh, are all very mindful, especially on the broadcasting side, as Adam will discuss, of uh, how white male dominated that industry is. And uh, Adam and a whole lot of good people are trying to do something to change that. And we will talk to Adam about his black play-by-play broadcaster initiative. Uh, we'll hear from Benjamin Hill coming up in a little while. And then we'll see you on the other side to wrap things up. But Adley Rushman on our nationwide road to the show is next on this week's episode. As an official partner of Minor League Baseball, Nationwide's here to make sure you're protected for every pitch life throws at you. Visit Nationwide.com today to see how we can help meet your needs. Nationwide is on your side. To the Baltimore Orioles organization we go, and the fourth-ranked prospect in all of baseball, the top overall selection in the June 2019 Major League Baseball first-year player draft, and uh, a, a guy whose name I'm sure all of you are very familiar with. He needs no introduction, yet I gave him a lengthy one. Adley Rushman joins us from the Baltimore Orioles. Adley, how are you, man? I'm doing good. How about you? We're good. Thanks for uh, for coming on with us. So uh, one of our five nationwide road to the show ambassadors, uh, a guy who um, jumped into pro ball last year, obviously made a, a real quick impact, and now uh, a very strange first full season, uh, quote-unquote full season in baseball in 2020. But uh, circumstances beyond all of our controls have made things very weird in terms of trying to get sports back. But we uh, we have some optimism on that front, it seems like. What have the last couple of months been like for you, you know, trying to stay ready and uh, and just keep engaged at this point? Uh, yeah, it's been weird for sure. Um, you know, all the gyms being closed down. Uh, we had to basically create a home gym in our garage, so we moved out all the cars, um, got some weight room equipment, and so we've just been trying to get as much work in there as, as we can and uh, just been hitting um, in a cage basically for the last couple of months. And finally, uh, we've been able to see some uh, live pitching with uh, local guys around the Portland area. So uh, it's been good. Uh, but definitely, uh, definitely tough for sure. Let's go back a couple months to when things felt uh, a little bit more normal in terms of a sports contact. Spring training comes around. Uh, your first one as a as a professional ball player. Take us through those first few weeks and uh, and kind of getting set for what would have been, uh, you know, your first full season in a, a professional organization. Yeah, absolutely. Um, just being in big league camp uh, was really eye opening for me. Um, it provided just a lot of. Um, you know, a lot of opportunities for me to learn from uh, older guys and guys who had been around. Um, a lot of them, uh, fortunately, um, took me under their wing, and I was just able to really learn from them and uh, kind of get a sense of, you know, what their daily routine was like and just try and emulate everything after them. Um, I know, you know, from there, I, you know, I went to minor league camp for a couple days and 
was getting ready in the next couple of weeks to head off to, um, you know, full season. Uh, but just, I, I think those first couple of weeks were, were really crucial for me as far as, you know, my learning curve went and just, you know, getting accustomed to, you know, everyday life. Yeah. And what's something you took away from that, that you are able to carry into your day, day to day now, whether it's working in the cage, working defensively, weight training, you know, even in that brief time in major league camp, what's something you still lean on from that time? Um, I think for me, it's just it's creating good habits um, on a day-to-day basis and, and establishing a routine that works for you. Um, each one of those guys had a routine that they were very set in and they stuck with it. And for them, that kept them on track and, and put them in a position uh, of where they needed to be and, and help them feel uh, prepared um, at, you know, at the time they were at. And I think for me, it was just, you know, they helped me kind of establish my routine when I was there so that I felt comfortable and I felt good in what I was doing on an everyday basis. So, and you know, I think that's the, the consistency in that really helped out. Yeah. And I'm sure there are a lot of O's fans and a lot of young kids at home listening to this and wondering, you know, what's the routine that's going to work for me. So what is the Adley Rutschman routine? What have you found that works for you and gets you into a place where you can be as successful as you have been? Uh, for me, it's, you know, I, I wake up and I think, you know, starting my day off with a, with a meditation and just, um, you know, visualizing what I want to do for the day, um, gets me, gets me mentally prepared. And then just showing up to the field, you know, you're going to create a different routine for spring training than you do for, you know, once you get into full season and, you know, different routine when you are on a travel day. Um, so for me during spring training, uh, get to the field around you know it'd be 7 15 7 30 in the morning and then from there just go to the training room uh hop in the cold tub uh roll out stretch out uh get ready for early work uh with catching and then from there uh, we kind of get into our stretch and routine but um just the little things like that making sure you you know you feel good every single morning kind of gets you in that in that good mindset for the day and you feel uh you know prepared uh, but, you know, obviously, like I said, once, you know, short se- or the, the full season starts, then it's it becomes different. And, um, you know, you got to create those different routines for travel days and whatnot. And we've talked about spring training here as if it's your first and you have to go through a lot of that. It's a big learning process. But um, I'm sure it's it's a little different for you being somebody who's the number one overall pick. Uh, everybody in Sarasota knows who you is, what, who, who you are, whether it's fans in the stands, whether it's, uh, you know, trainers, coaches, whatever. Anytime you walk in the room, people understand who you are. What was it like balancing that, you know, kind of the expectations with also, with also the educational aspect of it? Um, I mean, the, the thing is, uh, for me, I, I was fortunate enough to, you know, be in a, a big league clubhouse where no one really you know, cared about that as much. And I, I think, uh, guys, you know, everyone treated me normally and the tr- same with the trainers. And I, you know, I'd never want to think of myself as, you know, having any sort of, you know, special, um, you know, special, having a special situation. I, I would never want to think of having myself like be, <clears throat> you know, in front of ev- anyone as far as. Um, you know, a position, I, I, I'm always in a position to where I want to learn. I'm trying to put myself in a, you know, that learning mindset, uh, and just being around guys who, who want to, you know, be there to, to help me out and, and, uh, and to just be in that, in that mindset. So, um, you know, I, 
I don't know. I, I think it, it made it a lot easier for me um, just being in a learning mindset and always just trying to have as much humility as I can. Cause um, you know, if you, if you come, if you walk around, like, you know, you think you've done something, then uh, you know, I, I just never want ego to be something that gets in my way of my learning. Adler, let's take it back to, to last year. Um, you're uh, the first overall draft selection in uh, in baseball. It's such a different thing because you're in the, the process of trying to lead uh, one of the best programs in baseball to a College World Series title and all that and going through draft preparations and those things as it's all going along. Uh, and then you sign and you're into pro ball pretty quickly and you climb through three levels, uh, starting off at, at rookie ball in the GCL um, and then making the jump up to, to Aberdeen first at Class A short season then finishing with Del Marva, um, when you got to the end of last September, let's say, how do you even begin to process the previous nine months? I mean, you go into your final year of college, play a long season there, uh, get into the draft, first overall pick, sign a contract, jump into pro ball, go through three levels. Like, were you just exhausted? How did how did you feel at the end of last season? Um, it was definitely a long year. Um, you know, call, going from college to pro ball is especially tough because there's no off season. You're playing, you got fall ball, winter ball, and then spring season and then the draft and you go to um, your short season. So it's definitely a full year with a lot of emotions. So definitely to get to that first off season, um, you know, having that chance to debrief and just kind of reflect was, uh, was crucial. And I, and you know, it was, uh, it was definitely, um, you know, enjoyed. And, and I think, you know, having that time to rest during cover was, was huge because, uh, it's definitely a full year, but, you know, I'm never going to forget it because it was definitely one of the most enjoyable I'm ever going to have. You play in, in 37 games, uh, but you do that at three different levels, and that seems like such a whirlwind. And, and starting off, obviously, in, in Florida, uh, in the GCL, and then jumping up to, to Aberdeen and Delmarva, what was it like making those moves in your first season? Obviously, the Orioles really wanted to see um, both where they could test you last year and also not burn you out after such a long year. Making those moves, how challenging was that, or how much did you embrace and, and like that last year? Um, I mean, that's the thing is, is moving up each level, uh, to, to be with guys that, you know, you don't know, or have never met before. It's, it makes you uncomfortable. Um, but you know, you gotta, I think that's one of the best learning things is, uh, learning to be comfortable being uncomfortable. And, and so each time I moved up a level, I had to become friends with new guys and new faces. And those first couple of days in the locker room are kind of, you know, awkward, not knowing anyone. So it's almost like you're the new kid at school, but uh, just making those friendships and, and coming into spring training this year with, with uh, you know, three different levels of, of people I'd play with, um, it, you know, made it a lot more fun to be there. And I think uh, just cherishing that opportunity to move up different levels and have that uncomfortability was uh, a blessing in disguise for me. And, and let's jump back even further. Uh, you know, we're talking here now about a week ahead of the draft. So you're, you're 12 months out of your own draft story now. I feel like we only get to ask this to about you know a couple dozen guys in history, but at what point did you know that you were going to be the number one overall pick or even a candidate to to be the number one overall pick? I know it helped you hit 408 uh, you know, in 2018 that year Oregon State wins the national title. You come back 2019, you hit 411, you hit 17 home runs. You put yourself squarely in that conversation. But at what point did you realize – Hey, this this is my destiny. This is where I'm going. Oh shoot! I mean, you know, you have those the uh, the you know pre-draft 
um, these are like the top prospects. And I remember looking at the end of the season before and I was the top prospect and, um, you know, people are like, Oh, you know, my friends would love to joke around with me and say, Oh, you know, just cause you're there now, it doesn't mean you're going to be there, you know, in a year, like, you know, hopefully you don't bust. And, you know, that's, that's, uh, you know, some of the fun that they would flick me. And I think having uh, people around me who would just kind of keep it light and, you know, keep, keep perspective like that and keep me lighthearted was, was huge. Um, but I think it was really not until about a week before the, you know, the draft that I was like, wow, this is, you know, a, a real possibility and could, you know, definitely happen. Um, so yeah, it was, it was a crazy experience. And I think that week leading up, there was a lot of phone calls and just, you know, uh, just a huge run of emotions that, you know, uh, and a lot of conversations that took place. So. Yeah. And, and not to get too deep into it, but, uh, I know the Orioles, it- pretty much everybody had you slated to go to the Orioles and then it happens. And I, I think even the GM said at one point, Hey, it's nice to see you again. Um, and just what was the lead up like with that and the flirtation with them knowing, you know, it's one thing to go number one overall, but now all of a sudden, you know, who exactly you could go to, what were those weeks leading up to in terms of those discussions with your advisor and all of that leading up to number one overall? I mean, uh, the thing the thing like the biggest thing that my uh, advisor had to say at the time was basically just, you know, you can control what you can control and just, you know, keep having fun and keep playing and the rest will take care of itself. Like don't even worry about the draft or where you're going to go because you know, you just got to keep on the course. And so that was kind of my mindset. Like the whole year we were just, you know, focus on the team, focus on what I can do and just keep working every day. And you know, whatever comes as a result is going to be because of the work and because of the mindset you had going in. Um, but those, you know, those conversations leading up, you know, I met, um, I met with them once during that year, um, in person, they came to Corvallis and, um, but really up until the, you know, the final couple of days, there was, there was not a lot of conversations that took place. So, um, you know, not, not as many as people think actually. So it was kind of, you know, it was crazy. And, and I think it made it more exciting because I really did not know until you know they really called my name so that that made it a lot more exciting and and let's get into the baseball reasons why you were the number one overall pick one thing that stands out to me is you went from hitting nine homers in that really good sophomore year we talked about to hitting 17 as a junior and your walks also went up pretty good you went from 53 walks to 76 you only struck out 38 times You, you basically doubled Uh, the amount of walks you had versus strikeouts. What approach changes or what physical maturation went into both that power jump and also the approach to the plate, to the place where you could walk 70 plus times in just a single spring? Um, So, okay, before the year uh, started, they kind of talked to me about Michael Conforto when he was there and his junior year. And they said he had like a tough start to his junior year. And that was kind of the, you know, year that he was the guy on the team. And they said the biggest problem he had was, you know, he was trying to do too much. You know, guys were going to pitch around him. They weren't going to want to throw to him and just take your walks when you get them and not be, you know, and be selective about your pitches. And so for me, that was kind of my mindset going in was, okay, if people want to walk me, if they want to pitch around me, then I'm going to take the walks. And eventually they're going to have to throw to me at some point and I just have to be ready when they do. And so for me, it was just trying to be patient at the plate um, led to those walks. And then, you know, it still allowed me to, you know, hit the pit. When I got good pitches, I swung. So that was, 
the biggest thing for me on that front. And then just the, for the power stuff, it was just swing adjustments over the course of the, you know, three years I was there. Ellie, let's talk about Oregon State baseball a little bit. Um, prior to the, the 2006 National Championship, um, you know, it had been forever since a, a quote-unquote northern school or a quote-unquote cold-weather school had won a national championship in baseball. And Pat Casey built up that program. I mean, that was over a decade into his tenure as the head coach there, but builds that program into a national powerhouse. And Pat Casey's a, an Oregon-born guy. You're an Oregon-born guy. Uh, I know you've got a lot of ties to, to Oregon baseball. Um, your father played at Linfield and, and all that type of stuff. What is it about Oregon and about Oregon State that has created such a monster out there it's such a fascinating and awesome baseball community that i think 15 years ago people probably were not really aware of what is it about oregon state that's made it what it is i mean it's it's pat casey the the dude is just unreal if you have ever have the chance to listen to him speak or be around him you'll understand why oregon state is the way it is and you know the the way he talks about stuff the way he motivates is just on another level and he can, you know, he, he can do things that I've, you know, never seen, uh, from another coach. And it's just, I I don't know how he did it. Um, but the man just, he, he created a winning program, uh, through just, you know, will determination and just, you know, instilling a mindset into his players that, you know, they can take into whatever, you know, wherever they go from there, you know, whether it's pro ball, becoming a father, husband um you know worker whatever it is they take that mindset into it and i think that's why a lot of oregon state guys um you know do great things after after they're done with baseball when you look back on where you were as a a senior in high school or freshman in college going into that program what did he help you grow with most both both as a, a ball player and as a person um i mean for me my freshman year uh he was you know he's tough on a lot of the freshmen and he kind of sees uh, you know, basically who can take it and who's going to basically rise uh, from that, you know, motivation and who's, you know, who's not. And I think the guys who do, they become, you know, great players and the guys who don't, they, you know, they don't end up uh, doing as much. And I think, you know, that's just kind of the way he does it. My freshman year, um, I mean, th- that's really what he did for me as far as like any physical adjustments. It wasn't as much as the the mental uh, mindset that he you know, created for me. I got to ask you a, a football-related question. I think a lot of people probably are not aware that you played uh, football at Oregon State as well your freshman year. You were a place kicker on kickoffs, uh, 20 touchbacks as a freshman. But I want to go back to high school. Is it true that you kicked a 63-yard field goal in high school? That's the NFL record, right? 60, Maybe 64 now for the NFL record. But for generations, that was the NFL. You kicked a 63-yard field goal? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> my senior year. How is that possible? Crazy. Take us oh, through that moment. Oh, my gosh, man. Oh, I mean, so it was semifinal game um, against Tiger High School just down the road. Um, they were at our place, and there was, I think, three seconds left in the half. We are on the 46-yard line. And one of our coaches called timeout. It wasn't even our head coach. And, <laughs> and they called, <laughs> I think it was our special teams coach. He called timeout and our head coach was like, what are you doing? He's like, let's try a field goal. And, and uh, I remember before the game, before the game, I, I think I stretched it out to 65 yards. So they're kind of like, 
they they thought okay 65 is the like the the limit for today but you know usually when you are in game they're not going to pull the trigger on that so um but they did and they're like all right he's like shoot let's do it so sent the field goal unit out and i went out there and my only goal was to just not miss short so i was like (laughs) you know wherever it goes and I kind of had that little lefty, it curved back, uh, you know, started off left and curved back to the right because I, you know, left-footed kicker and just kind of curved back in and, you know, shoot, man, it had the distance and, you know, time ran out on the clock and it was halftime, so everyone just kind of stormed the field and then we went into the locker room and it was just wild, man. Like, one of the best moments I've had, especially for football in, in high school, like, just crazy. That is amazing. <laughs> we can only imagine what cool moments are coming. I mean, you've done that. Like we said, you've won a college world series. You've caught the last out of that. Um, but as you're beginning your pro career here, and we, we don't know what that's going to look like in terms of 2020, but um, you know, you're getting to know pro ball a little bit more. You're getting to know the Orioles organization a little bit more and the city of Baltimore. What are you learning about the Orioles Baltimore in general? And what do you hope Orioles fans get to know about you as they get closer to thinking about, you know, you're the top prospect. You're the, the guy they could root for in Camden Yard someday. Um, yeah. What, what about both sides? Something you're learning about Baltimore and something you hope Baltimore learns about you. Um, I mean, well, just as about the organization as a whole, uh, they've brought in a lot of new people in the past uh, couple months. And from, you know, what I can tell so far and uh, the conversation I've had with everyone it just seems like they're preaching, you know, low ego, a lot of humility, and they're living by it. And, you know, all the minor league guys, um, major league guys, I know they can feel it. And I think it's it's a very difficult concept to implement in such a large amount of people, but I think they're doing a great job of it right now. And it starts at the top, and, you know, it works down. And I think it's they've done a great job of it so far so i'm very happy with just the character of people that they've brought in and so and i think that says a lot about an organization it's just the character of people that work in it and i think that you know that feeds into the players and so i'm very happy about that uh just as far as me um, as a ball player um you know i always try and have fun on the field um i always you know i i i love after an inning, getting excited with a pitcher, uh, you know, the day that I stop having fun playing baseball is, you know, the day that I'm going to quit. Uh, and, you know, it's a game I love and I enjoy. And, you know, it, it breaks my heart not to be playing. But, um, you know, I just I hope that people see the excitement and joy I have when I play. And that's that's all I can ask, basically, is that people, you know, I hope people enjoy watching it. I hope people enjoy watching me. And, uh, I hope that they get you know, the same joy that I get playing as they do watching. So, um, you know, it's a, it's a beautiful game and, um, you know, that's really it. Yeah. And speaking of it being a beautiful game, we end every interview we do these, these days, uh, these uncertain days, as it were, um, without knowing when minor league baseball will return, what it'll look like when it does. But, uh, in your brief time so far, whether it's in the GCL, whether it's with Aberdeen or Del Marva, what has been your favorite minor league memory? Um, I mean, I, I think Aberdeen, um, you know, we had a, we had a game winner. Um, it was, I, I think it was like bottom nine. We had a game winner and, um, it was basically two outs runner on second and we had a single to drive in the winning run. And, um, just, <laughs> you know, we all kind of just stormed field, uh, 
took out the Gatorade, took out the water coolers and just, you know, dumped it on, uh, you know, the, the guy who hit it. And basically, uh, it was just one of those cool moments that kind of brought me back to college and just the excitement that everyone had for winning a game. Uh, it was, it was a fun moment. And, and just to have that after that, we actually, you know, got on a bus and drove nine hours to somewhere else, but, uh, it was an exciting time and, uh, just kind of brought me back to those, those college days. So Adley Rutschman is the fourth-ranked prospect in baseball. I do have to ask you one thing before we go. Were you a fan of wearing black and orange before you went to college? Because now you're set for life with black and orange gear. Oh, I know. I can't get away from it. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. It's a good setup. It worked out pretty well for you. It looks good on you. The uh, the O's will obviously lavish you with uh, whatever you have for the the career ahead, and uh, and we're excited to see where it goes, man. Uh, top prospect in the Baltimore Orioles organization and Adliad. Big thanks for joining us. We know things are, are so strange right now and schedules are weird and all that, but uh, we'll see you back on the field sometime soon and, and can't wait for that moment, and thanks for all the time today. Yeah, absolutely, guys. Stay safe and stay healthy. Well, continuing along this week on the Show Before the Show podcast, we are uh, going to go off the field for uh, just a little bit, talking draft and uh, and baseball stuff this week. But there are obviously so many things going on that are so much bigger than baseball uh, on a societal level, and uh, all of that affects sports. And as we told you last week, if you are a stick-to-sports person, uh, your time is kind of over, and we're going to continue along with a conversation that is not exactly sticking to sports, thankfully. Uh, and we are joined from uh, Central Massachusetts, as i got to break down uh, briefly a little while ago of central versus western massachusetts geography between sam and our guest today uh adam giardino who is uh a minor league broadcaster who has been with the scranton wilkesbury rail riders and the trenton thunder among others uh and who on social media this week has come up with uh, an initiative that we're going to discuss uh at length adam welcome man how are you uh, I'm I'm really well, guys. Thank you for uh, thank you for having me. I know that's cliche, but it's been the re- response to um, to this initiative has been unbelievable. Just um, I'm sure a lot of your your listeners, people that are listening to this right now, um, if they follow any sort of account of a broadcaster on minor league baseball, m- most broadcasters were in on this project, wanted to amplify the message, and it's it's just been awesome. So tell us about the Black Play-By-Play Broadcaster Grant. This is something that uh, last week you got in touch, uh, sent an email. We started talking kind of back and forth about things. And, um, you know, one of the the first things that I mentioned to you and that I know you feel the the same way, I was uh, a minor league radio guy for four years. I never once came across a a broadcaster of color uh, or a a woman, for that matter, as a a play-by-play voice in the minor leagues. Obviously, there have been uh, several women that we've uh, profiled on the site over the last few years who have started to move in those roles and I know we've even got one now at the major league level in Melanie Newman with the Baltimore Orioles but um, for broadcasters of color it's been a different road uh, over the last you know several years that issue has been discussed a little bit more Um, but right now we are in such a moment and uh, last week and started the the genesis of how you were going to roll out the black play-by-play broadcaster grant and give us the the rundown on this initiative from your end. Right. And, and, you know, we are in a moment in the country. And I think there are a lot of us who um, are are seeing what's happening and just trying to figure out what our role is in it. And as a as a a white male, um, you know, you and I and Sam, we all come from um, the special place of privilege that we hadn't maybe had to reckon with until right now. And so, um, you know, I, I think 
going from broadcast booth to broadcast booth, it's not until you, you step back in minor league baseball and realize that, yeah, my experience was, was similar to yours, that it's just been all white males that have been staring back at me. And, you know, we, we become a fraternity. We become a group of friends. Um, and so you become desensitized maybe to that stark reality that, that everyone looks like you. Um, and, and so when I, when I kind of sat down and thought of, of what I wanted to do and just what needed to be done to, um, to kind of make my stamp on this whole thing, uh, from a, a larger societal level, I thought, let's, let's do something in my corner of it. And broadcasting is where that is. So, uh, reaching out to people on Tuesday, um, we're recording this on Wednesday. So as we speak, Eight days ago, I reached out and sent an email to about 30 colleagues across minor league baseball, basically said, this is my idea. Um, and I sent it to people who I, I thought would have a positive response. And the idea was, let's raise $3,000 for a grant that can go to helping out a, a broadcaster, a black broadcaster who is looking to get into the industry. When I first started in the minors, uh, it wasn't until I was 26 that I received more than $1,000 a month in any of my jobs. I worked for the Lakewood Blue Claws, the Trenton Thunder. And yeah, it wasn't until my, my fourth year, I went from $600 a month to 800 to 1,000. And then I think my, I think that fourth year was when I, I made $1,200 a month. Um, and so, you know, it's, it's hard. You need to be committed, but you also need to have other things that maybe not everybody has access to. And I have a safety net where I never had to get money from my parents, but should even the slightest of hiccups happen along my road, um, you know, if if I needed to get a new tire because a, a tire popped and I didn't have a hundred bucks to do so because I wasn't paid enough, uh, my parents were there. And had I not come from a situation with with that background, I would never have felt comfortable accepting a job. It wouldn't have been a responsible decision for me as a recent college graduate to accept a job knowing that the slightest bump in the road could have just totally thrown off my financial future. And so that was sort of the impetus for, for all of this, the larger discussion, the thought of why are we seeing 160 minor league teams and why are we seeing um, never more in my 10 years, there has never been a total of six black broadcasters total in in this time so why why is that number where it is and and um i think speaking larger to what we're seeing with the coronavirus right now it's um you know i think it's easier for us to understand from what we're seeing there disproportionately affecting communities of color that we have issues that can be resolved and that maybe money isn't the sole reason that Black broadcasters aren't entering into the minors, but $3,000 a grant, which is $500 a month over the six months, maybe that's the thing that can, that can alleviate some of those fears, those financial concerns, and maybe make and allow that black broadcaster who would have said no otherwise decide to leave home, move halfway across the country, and work in the minors for six months. Yeah, and that gets to something that I wanted to bring up. Um, you know, you touched on it a little bit there, but so much of what we talk right now in, in this time is, you know, people say, do the work. We're going to do the work. Well, what does do the work mean? And you've honed in on this grant, and you touched on it a little bit there that, you know, not everybody, especially people coming 
uh, people of color necessarily who come from different economic backgrounds, which come from a lot of history. And there's a reason why, um, you know, the, the wealth isn't concentrated with people of color in this country. But why hone in on, on a grant what, when you were sitting down trying to decide what can we do about this? You know, there's a, a million different options out there. Not necessarily all of them are good. Not necessarily all of them are applicable. Um, but why hone in on this grant program as a potential solution? It just felt tangible, and I, I'm somebody that, in the minors, I, I've always been willing to give time to to up and coming broadcasters, um, and, and you know, listen to demos and help critique and answer questions, and that's part of this that I love because people did that for me as I was coming up. Um, but you know, when you think of barriers to entry for for everything in life, and what are some of these barriers to entry, and money is a barrier to entry, and I think that. Um, you know, as I've thought of, of money in my, my course through the minors, as I outlined with hardly getting paid anything at all, uh, until I was a number one broadcaster in double a baseball. I mean, it, it took until then before I received $1,500 a month from the Trenton Thunder. So, you know, that's, I think on the outside looking in, you can, you can be successful, perceived as successful. I think there were so many people that would look at me and say, oh, he's a double-A broadcaster for the New York Yankees. He's doing great. You know, this is, this is great. He's in his mid-20s, and he's on the right path. But there were so many financial struggles that I dealt with coming from such a privileged position um, with an upper-middle-class background and, uh, and all that I described. So for me, that's where when I really reflected, money was, was something where I thought this could be the thing that makes the difference for somebody. And uh, I'll, I'll expand a little bit longer that – when I've spoke to some of the former minor league broadcasters, black minor league broadcasters, Darius Thigpen, who was pre and post for Columbus, pre and post for Lehigh Valley, Chris Lewis out with the Idaho Falls Chuckers, and a couple of the, the big league broadcasters, Robert Ford um, and Dave Sims. Ford's with the Astros and was formerly with Binghamton in the minors. Dave Sims has been with the Mariners. And, uh, and Greg Young, who's with currently with the Carolina Mudcats. I made sure I spoke to all of them on the phone this week. And that was something I, as a white person, had a hard time reckoning with to to make that leap and say, well, what if the person we're giving this grant to doesn't necessarily need the money? And if you go to the Twitter thread that I had put up, there was a part in there that, that really made me feel whole in terms of what this project was. And, you know, this, as much as it's about the money, and maybe $3,000 is the difference between someone saying yes or no to this job, but it's also a larger gesture from the industry and from people all across the country saying, we're broadcasters, we want to make this change, and we, we want diversity in, in our ranks, and we see you, we want you with us, we'll do everything we can, money otherwise, to make sure that you're successful once you're, once you're in the industry with us. And we talk so much about the industry and representation obviously is important and seeing, you know, numbers reflect the country in, in terms of percentages and, and but you don't want to just stick it to numbers. But in terms of what voices of color or voices from people of color would bring to the table that aren't necessarily in minor league baseball now, I mean, given your experience in the industry, what would adding a few of these voices do for the industry as a whole? It just gives life a different perspective. And, you know, I think, um, you know, as, as we watch 
sports on television and I and listen to it on radio, I think that by and large, the people who are most interesting are the people who inject their own personality. And when I spoke to a lot of the, the guys on the phone, um, you know, multiple referenced Stuart Scott as their inspiration and how, um, you know, bef- before Stuart Scott got on the air at SportsCenter, that there were the references that were being made by the sports center anchors were were friends and Seinfeld references and uh, and then Stuart came along and everybody at ESPN said all right we're just going to start making black community references and and let Stuart do his thing and then all of a sudden that became part of the mainstream so i think allowing allowing this just getting them in the door and allowing creativity and allowing personalities to shine i don't think i don't think there is a necessary answer that we can say by doing this, we know that broadcasting will take this direction. But until they're in the door, until they're in that seat, there's no telling what we as a sports community are, is missing out on. You know, we're missing out on from, from not having them there. Adam, the uh, the discussion of uh, what this means for people who are already in the industry, talking with other broadcasters and all that kind of stuff, uh, is something that uh, has been on, on social media and um, reflected how much people want to be part of this effort. But I'm interested also in what you have heard from young broadcasters who haven't had a chance to to get into the industry yet and see this now as possibly an avenue. And I don't, I don't know if people realize – how huge $500 a month would be uh, in a, a financial setting for a minor league broadcaster because there's, you know, always the the cliche uh, guy with the car selfie and his sunglasses on on Twitter who's saying, oh, I'd do it for free. Well, you wouldn't. Uh, <laughs> and the the concept that just getting paid a, a certain amount of money, whether it's 600 or 800 or $1,000 a month, uh, can pay certain bills, eh, not really, because there's a, a lack of benefits. Uh, things like student loans don't magically go away if you accept a job that mm-hmm. doesn't really pay very well. Your car payment doesn't go away. Uh, you might not be paying a ton in rent. Maybe you're lucky enough to find a host family, there are still so many obligations that are not covered. And so this is a big thing. And money should not be a barrier to entry uh, for somebody who already has so many other barriers of entry. What have you heard from young broadcasters, black broadcasters, broadcasters of color who think now, oh, maybe this is an avenue that I can go and it opens something for me that was not previously open? So the funny thing is just to react to the first part of that, of the experience of living as a broadcaster in minor league baseball, you know, all of these all of those bills that you described are really the very basic needs of a college graduate in 2020. And the the irony is, is that the ask of, hey, I need X amount of money per month total from this job just to get by, as you very well know, Tyler, there is no other time when you are in minor league baseball season, you are not spending money on almost anything else. Your meals are just about taken care of when you're at home by the team, when you're eating dinner. Uh, there's maybe a night or two where you go out with coworkers after a game, but you're at the ballpark. You're not spending money frivolously. And the ask is really, again, just to, hey, let's go to the ballpark, do this thing that I love, go home, get sleep, come back, 7 a.m., 9 a.m., do it again, and just keep keep that going. And, um, you know, it's funny just thinking about my experience that I think once I made $1,200 a month that, you know, that's $7,200, um, 
for the for the season and I still somehow came home with money in my pocket I had somehow turned I'd made money off of that because I I didn't spend it so there is it is such a small ask for the broadcast community to say I want to get my foot in the door I just need a little bit of money I just need to live and those needs aren't necessarily being met which then when you take the question that you did ask about what I'm hearing from these young broadcasters it is a lot of that that it's a lot of hey, I'm just looking to break even on my first year in baseball. Right. I'm looking right. to not have to borrow from my parents and then come and come back home and, and live with them and then have to pay them back for money that I borrowed. You know, that's that's the ask. And so that's what I'm hearing from from broadcasters. And uh, my Twitter feed's been totally overrun with mentions and, and all these sort of things. And I, I've been trying to stay on top of emails and whatnot in the last 48 hours that I do need to go back. And I over the course of... Monday and Tuesday, I know I've missed some from high school age black broadcasters, aspiring broadcasters, some who are currently in college and are seeing this and are getting excited and, and kind of quote tweeted it and tagged other friends in it as if to point this out to them. So the excitement is there. The opportunity is there. Um, and I really want to make sure that we're, we're connecting and addressing the needs of that particular underserved population looking to become broadcasters as much as possible. And I know you've teased this a little bit, but the, um, you know, the response to this has been so great and so wide and so vast and, and just, you know, a couple of days since you first posted the link. And even before that, because of the groundswell of the, the background work you did with broadcasters, your, your original goal was, you know, a single $3,000 grant. What are the kind of plans to maybe expand this or, or do some other things because of the response to this program so far? Yeah, the, the response has totally humbled me. Um, and, you know, from here we are standing eight days as we talk, eight days from when I really first sent out that first email till now. That goal was $3,000. Um, I hoped that we would hit $3,000. I was ready to throw an extra couple of hundred bucks my you know towards the grant just to get it to that number, and then we'd be off and running. Um, and the response, again, has just been unbelievable. There have been big league broadcasters that have seen this thanks to, you know, the, the onslaught of retweets and, and mentions and everything across Twitter. So the number that I have right now that I'm comfortable saying is that $13,000 has been raised. Um, and I think it might be a little bit more than that. And certainly there continue to be donations that trickle in. And so my goal is uh, – to keep money on hand for for next year and for future years, but I also want to take the three thousand dollar grant specifically intended for uh, a minor league baseball um, broadcaster, and then also start reaching out to current black undergrads who are pursuing play by play um, and and divvy up some scholarship money as well so this this little idea eight days ago that was hey let's try and just do this really nice thing and, and send $3,000 to somebody and, and make sure this becomes a more inclusive space has turned into a much larger project. I'm starting to uh, send out emails to people to try to figure out how the heck to start a, a 501c3. And uh, that's an unbelievable problem to have and, and figure out how we can make this a sustainable year over year effort, because that's the level of response that we've gotten. 
pretty incredible stuff. As Sam noted earlier, uh, we talk so much now about doing the work. And uh, for so long, I was just having a, a conversation with somebody about this last night. I think for so long, for so many white people in these conversations, it was, well, I'm not racist. I'm not part of the problem. So I think about it in an external context. Uh, and that is no longer enough. We're in this moment now where we talk about what it means to be anti-racist, what it means to do the work. And uh, living in a world where I was down at our, our vigil last night and have been at, at protests several nights throughout the last week. And uh, we've got a, a phenomenal um, young member of the, the Denver School Board named Tay Anderson, who was 21 years old, who was homeless at one time when he was in high school, graduated from DPS, uh, now is a member of the, of the school board. He's the youngest uh, black elected official in Colorado. And his point was for people right now who have not encountered this before, especially for members of the white community, it is important to sit in the uncomfortability of what this is, because that's how it has been for people of color for 400 years. And if we're sitting around having conversations that make you kind of squirm in your seat a little bit because you don't feel like you have been part of the issue, that's the important work. Uh, and to, to do something that provides pathways and opens doors uh, for people who have so many barriers to their entry into any kind of industry uh, is big work to be doing right now. And this is something that is... Uh, long overdue, I think, in the in the broadcasting world, and we all realize that. Um, you know, I know Sam and I were uh, in a conversation on Twitter the other day in which uh, a woman pointed out that white males are the gatekeepers of the broadcasting industry, and that's something that needs to change, and I could not agree with that more. Um, there need to be more voices. There need to be more diverse voices. We, uh, over the last several years, have been so elated to see the way women have taken such big steps in their minor league roles, uh, and we have not seen the same sort of, of, of climb uh, in the the industry, at least over the last few seasons, uh, from black voices and from Latino voices and all that type of stuff. And we do things at minor league baseball, like the Copa de la Diversión, that are uh, aimed at engaging communities. All these communities, we want to be able to engage and we want to be able to share uh, this world with. And um, this is a, a big area of this world. This is the area of the minor league world that communicates to fan bases just what we're about. Um, and and this is a, a big step. Um, Adam, for people who want to get involved from both a, uh, a donation and a, a contribution side, and also for young broadcasters who want to get involved, who want to know what the next steps are for them, where do they apply? How do they get information on it? Uh, give us the, the rundown on all that. Yeah, so in this situation, I wish, I wish my last name was a little bit easier to spell, but my name is Adam <laughs> Giardino, G-I-A-R-D-I-N-O. So that's my Twitter handle, at Adam Giardino. You can go to adamgiardino.com slash donate. There's tons of information. Um, I pinned on my Twitter account, I, I pinned that original tweet to the top. Um, so there's a 15-tweet thread that you can scroll through and, and um, just sort of get the, the ins and outs of what, uh, we're looking to do, and as I said, you know, it, it it feels a little informal for now when you think, well, okay, I'm just going to Venmo this guy some money, um, but again, it's in the works to make this a larger thing because, frankly, eight days ago, it was pretty darn informal. It was an email being sent out to say, hey, is, you know, are there enough of us that can piece this thing together for $3,000, and it's grown way beyond that. So that's, uh, that's all the information there that you can, um, you know, to, to get involved. And I think, I, you know, I'm just sort of urging people as they consider to donate. I've never been on this side of, of donations before. Um, and I think that 
you know, when, when I've donated to different causes before and it's, you know, I, I think about donating $25 or $50 or whatever it may be. And, um, the number of five and $10 donations I've received from current college students that saw this through some Twitter feed or from, you know, a, a former colleague who just, you know, had five bucks sitting in their Venmo account and wanted to send it over. It, it was that those are the donations that are, that really kind of make you step back. And, you know, I've had a couple of really larger $500 donations from prominent broadcasters where you think, wow, that's awesome that they saw this. And as I'm writing messages to people to thank them for their $5 donations as well, that, you know, some, some random college student from the university of Iowa who saw this and just wanted to, to throw $5 towards this cause. That's, those are the ones that are really incredible. So whatever amount, whatever interest, if you just want to send me a message, a direct message, it's open um, just to talk about this. Um, I'm here. I'm willing. It's, there's been far better received than I could have hoped for. And uh, it's, it's just the start because it seems to be rolling downhill pretty quickly. So I'm just trying to keep up with it for now. And I, I'm, I'm really thankful that you guys wanted to shine a light on it. All the info is there and uh, get in touch with Adam and, and do your part to, to help do the work. Adam, thanks so much for the time, man. And uh, it's uh, a, a very extremely worthy uh, thing that you're doing. And, uh, and we really appreciate you including us in, in getting the word out. Tyler, Sam, thank you guys so much for doing this today. And we'll certainly see you at a ballpark soon enough. Continuing on this week on the show before the show podcast. I think that's the exact way that I introed the last segment, but whatever. We're going to keep it in. Um, we just heard from uh, Adam Giardino and uh, and his initiative uh, to try to open doors for uh, for black broadcasters and broadcasters of color. Benjamin Hill will have a story on the site um, that kind of expounds on uh, the the initiative and, uh, and a lot of the things around it. And we welcome Ben in for our weekly conversation with him. Hey, Ben. Hey, Tyler, and hey, Sam, good to talk to you guys, and um, I'm once again speaking from my bedroom, as I do every week, and uh, you know, it's a good place to be. I got a box fan going, and it is a rare moment in time in many, many ways, but uh, in a very small way, in that you know, usually your guest on show before the show does not overlap with a story I'm writing about, but um, obviously this is a big, you know, in minor league baseball right now, looking for stories that really stand out, this uh, Adam Giardino and uh, the black broadcaster play-by-play grant um i think it's a really important story and i'm glad you were able to talk to him and i hope people uh, you know especially after hearing your interview with adam can read my story uh get more information on that uh, i spoke with adam for a while yesterday and i spoke with uh one of the black broadcasters who he you know was called consulting with when he was putting the uh, grant together darius thigpen who spent time with the columbus clippers and lehigh valley iron pigs and now works for uh longwood university or college i should look up which one longwood is but anyhow i spoke with darius You're thigpen right. What's that? I think it's university. I think you're right. That's what I wanted to say, and then I second guess myself. Um, I should never second guess myself. It's like the ACT. But, uh, your, I did this your first time. answer. Yeah, a hundred percent. That's what I look like. Where that's what I tell myself when I'm doing this this segment every week is like, <laughs> this is the ACT, man. Just go first with your gut I'll keep going. <laughs> Yeah. Um, but yeah, I spoke with Darius uh, quite a bit uh, earlier today and just trying to write up a, a story right now with, uh, you know, Adam's perspective on how this came about, which I'm sure he just talked to you about, as well as uh, Darius's perspective as a, you know, black play-by-play broadcaster who's spent time in minor league baseball and, you know, his thoughts on uh, what it's like to be, you know, such a distinct minority in this industry. And it's true. You know, I'm the guy who's 
well, I'm, I'm a guy who's done a lot of things on and off the record, but, um, you know, I'm the guy professionally who's been to every ballpark and I was racking my brain. And the only time I could think of that I ever visited a minor league ballpark in which a team had a black broadcaster was one of my very early trips to Binghamton when I was still part-time over 10 years ago. And Robert Ford um, was there with the Binghamton at the time Mets. Uh, you know, he's since moved on to a major league job, but that's over a decade ago. And, um, there have just been so few black broadcasters in minor league baseball, so I do think it's something to pay attention to, and I'm I'm glad that we're talking about this. Certainly. Robert Ford, of course, is now uh, one of the voices of the Houston Astros. Um, but, yeah, uh, the interview, obviously, which you just heard, and, and Ben's story coming to the site as well. Um, this episode airing on Friday, we uh, pushed things back so we could do uh, a draft recap on Thursday. And so uh, everybody will hear this on Friday. And Ben will have some stuff that is up on the site. And we're going to dive into a story uh, from this week in which we continue along with some facts about uh, each league in minor league baseball. Ben so far has been through AAA and AA and now arriving at the Class A advanced level with the California League uh, in which the eight teams, formerly a 10-team league, of course two teams, the High Desert Mavericks and the Bakersfield Blaze no longer in that league. Carolina League picking up those two teams. Carolina League I would assume is up next uh, in the the league fun fact series, but uh, that leaves eight in the Cal League some really good ones. San Jose, a fascinating fact. Um, but I want to dive into uh, a thing that you pointed out, which is the Stockton Ports. They are one of the oldest teams uh, in the Cal League. They were, in fact, a charter member of the league, uh, established in 1941. But in 2000 and 2001, Stockton was no longer the Ports. And for those two seasons alone... They were known as the Mudville Nine, which, of course, are the team uh, that Casey belonged to in the Ernest Thayer baseball poem, Casey at the Bat. Uh, And Stockton stakes its claim to being the inspiration for the town Mudville. But that only lasted two years. Then they were back to the ports. They've been the ports ever since. And beyond that being an interesting fact, there is a team in their league that every year, I, I think this is still an ongoing thing, plays a game or a handful of games as the Mudville Nine, and it's not Stockton. It's, this is a whole Mudville Nine obsession that, uh, that I was not – I think I had come across in various incarnations, but I wasn't really consciously aware of this way. Yeah, it, it's a little hard to figure out. Um, when I visited Stockton last, which was, uh, I want to say – 2016 and uh, i want to say that because i'm correct it was 2016 um i took a visit along with uh, brian metters who supports gm uh at the time and uh we visited a local history museum and talked to the museum's uh, ceo and curator and he had all these different archival materials related to stockton's baseball history and and things that point to it possibly being the inspiration for casey at the bat and at the same time, all the way across the country, there is a, uh, a town in Massachusetts, uh, Holliston, Massachusetts, that you know, almost equally to Stockton takes claim as the locale, the mudville of the classic poems, uh, Casey at the Bat. So is it Stockton? Is it Holliston? And regardless, why does Visalia, which is closer to Stockton than Holliston, obviously, but neither of those locales, why do they call themselves the mudville mountain? Is that a reference to Stockton? I I don't even know. But I like these things, you know, early baseball history, things being shrouded in myth 
and to a degree really never being able to to figure it all out. I mean, one thing I can tell you definitively about Casey at the Bat is that there's a record featuring Tug McGraw on the Philadelphia Pops Orchestra, in which Tug McGraw narrates the poem. And uh, maybe you can find it at your local used record store or online, but it is awesome. Tug McGraw, Peter Nero, and the Philly Pops Orchestra narrating Casey at the Bat in the wake of the Phillies winning the 1980 World Championship. Great LP. I love it. Thank you for allowing me to go off on that little tangent. Well, can I just point out quick, just having done a little research, that according to the guy who actually wrote the poem Casey at the Bat, Ernest Lawrence there, who grew up in, in Worcester, Mass, and I'm always going to point that out, but he says it has no basis in fact whatsoever. Everything has so, basis in fact. Base, on, bases Ernest. with an E. <laughs> For, for baseball ah, everyone get that at home nice. um but yeah apparently he like covered the stockton ports at one point so some people think it's stockton but then he grew up in central mass near holliston so they think like oh mudville is a neighborhood of holliston he says it, it's not one place or the other so just let it belong to everybody can we come to that agreement okay, like if I like that if you want to believe just believe that it's you and then uh run with that I'm good with it. or is that is that not definitive enough no, that's that's very diplomatic and uh, open-hearted, Sam. I, I think uh, we'd be we'd do well to go with your approach and uh, have this poem be all things to all people. And uh, it doesn't need to be claimed by one locale or another. It just needs to be a quintessentially American mode of expression that we've all, uh, you know, found resonated with us. So who cares where it's from? All that matters is it it is. The thing exactly. that I love most about Casey the Bad is it ends with colossal disappointment, which as a Rockies fan, I am familiar with. Yeah, a hundred percent. It is not a story of triumph. It is a story of, of failure. Uh, you know, <laughs> no, I, I think it hit a little too close to home. And, and to me, I, instead of laughing, I immediately just went beyond that and just kind of thought how it reminded me of uh, being alive. Yeah. So I mean, it's very, you, it's yeah. very, uh, it is very fitting. I mean, there's a, there's a reason why it's poignant and why teams want to claim it um, because it is, it's not Roy Hobbs hitting a homer into a light tower, uh, which did not happen in the book, by the way, spoiler alert. Um, it's not the, that glorified Hollywood moment. It's like, oh, yeah, life is difficult sometimes. And, uh, and I think people really engage with that with Casey at the Bat. Yeah, and there's still the hope for another day. Right. Where, uh, where it all starts fresh and anew, and, you know, those birds will be uh, – chirping and the people will be smiling and uh, there's always hope for redemption one of the other um stories from the cal league that i find absolutely fascinating is san jose and uh the the san jose giants have been the san jose giants since 1988 but there was a period from 1983 through 1987 uh the the 70s and 80s were kind of the last hurrah for this but there were weird teams in minor league baseball that were not affiliated. They were part of affiliated leagues, but they weren't affiliated. And uh, the most notable example of this probably nowadays uh, is the Portland Mavericks from the Battered Bastards of Baseball, the Netflix documentary and all that. But San Jose had a similar story. Uh, They had an unaffiliated team from 1983 to 1987, and Ben points out that the 1986 version of that team, quote, featured five members on loan from Japan Seibu Lions, as well as five former major leaguers who had been suspended because of substance abuse issues, and there was a 2016 Sports Illustrated article that declared the 1986 Bs to be the, quote, weirdest team ever. Uh, I was not aware of that story. That is fascinating. 
Yeah, it's, I mean, and yes, 86 is quite a long time ago, but it's not that long ago. And, you know, the San Jose team has been a Giants affiliate named the Giants since 1988. That's a period of stability. But, you know, in 1986, it was this kind of like the Portland Mavericks, those battered bastards, um, you know, players, a lot of whom, you know, this is in the wake of, you know, when Major League Baseball had, you know, some pretty severe drug scandals, um, notably cocaine, a lot of players suspended for cocaine usage. So you had guys like, um, you know, Mike Norris and Steve Howe on this team, uh, Steve McCaddy, the 1981 leader in wins and, and ERA in the American League, Todd Cruz, a 30-year-old who had been with the uh, Orioles in 1983, you know, guys like that. Um, you know, all up and down the lineup who had been, uh, you know, suspended or had washed out due to severe alcohol uh, usage, uh, due to drug suspensions. And so, so many of these down and out, you know, down on their luck major leaguers were playing in the Class A Advanced California League in 1986 in a league like that was otherwise mostly up and coming prospects. Uh, you've got this group of uh, of like hard, grizzled, um, you know, they've seen and done it all uh, veterans. And, you know, a lot of them also Japanese with through some relationship I don't understand with uh, the Cebu Lions. It, it's uh, kind of crazy and, you know, never say never, but it's hard to see an era like that ever, ever coming back in uh, in minor league baseball and affiliated ball. And Ben, we just want to kind of pivot to this ongoing Twitter thread that you've had going on since what should have been opening day. And it's Milb hashtag what would have been night, um, which is really fun to look at. But especially now, I I feel like this last week there have been a couple interesting ones like we missed the Rickwood Classic that would have taken place on June 8th. Uh, Daytona was going to have nice night on uh, June 9th. Do the math at home if if you didn't, don't get that one. Um, but what are some of the ones that have, uh, you've particularly missed maybe in the last week or two or even month? Because we haven't really touched base on this on the podcast in a while. Like Fosh Knots, I remember we spent so much time in the off season trying to All pronounce right. that. That that would have come yeah. on Saturday. What are some other ones that we missed? Yeah, that would have been June 6th. I'm not even going to try to pronounce that again because it got us in all sorts of trouble uh, <laughs> last time. But, you know, basically, um, you know, April and May or most of May are not big promo months for minor league baseball. School's still in session. Um, you know, we're talking, of course, all in normal times, and this thread is what would have been, a you know, where we pretend things are normal. Um, but, you know, once you hit uh, Memorial Day and uh, the sun really starts coming out, and school, uh, the school year ends, then you see teams kind of bringing out the big guns uh, for their promotions. You know, one thing I've just sort of enjoyed doing, I'm not a huge fan of the office, but, you know, trying to track, you know, where uh, individuals such as Brian Baumgartner, who played Kevin, would be. You know, it's like where in the USA would uh, – Kevin Malone be for an office night, you know, uh, yesterday he would have been in uh, Norfolk with the Tides. We're having three office nights this year. Um, you know, really sad to see like that the Sam, as you mentioned, you know, that there's no Rickwood classic. Of course we knew that, but it kind of hurts when you hit the day of the Rickwood classic and, and that's not happening. Um, you know, this past weekend, the, the jumbo shrimp would have had their cozy coop night, which is a story I wrote about in the off season. The cozy coop is uh, the, you know, that little tykes uh, kids automobile, you know, red right. uh, plastic with the yellow roof. And so they had a huge theme night planned around that. Had been in touch with Lil Tykes. You know, we're going to have adults racing at Lil Tykes and giveaways, and they're going to give away like, a Lil Tyke golf cart to a lucky fan, um, you know, all sorts of stuff. And, you know, on that same night, in the more kind of press release, you know, who knows how they would have converted on it, 
promo, but uh, this past Saturday, the San Jose Giants were going to do Mason Saunders night, which uh, now that seems like per, you know maybe seven or eight years ago, but that was a night dedicated to Madison Bumgarner's rodeo alter ego. You know, all these things we're just totally forgetting about right now. Um, and so this is the type, and, you know, June, um, you know, we're seeing Pride Nights, potential Pride Nights, or, or what would have been Pride Nights all around uh, minor league baseball, Albuquerque, Hagerstown, Omaha, and so on and so forth. Um, a lot of them would be happening this month. Uh, you know, back to the Jacksonville Jumbo Shrimp, uh, they did an, they would have done an Appetite for Crustacean Night with a, um, uh, the team designed a uh, T-shirt giveaway that was kind of like the Guns N' Roses Appetite for Destruction cover, but, you know, Izzy Axel slush slush <laughs> slash uh, and Steven the, the band members uh, you know were represented instead of as skulls as shrimp in this Jacksonville jumbo shrimp uh, appetite for crustacean night giveaway so these are just fr- some from the last you know four or five days we are really entering what would have been you know the prime of the summer and it's uh, a poignant exercise every day to go through and chronicle what would have been but I'm committed to it. I'm going to keep doing it and uh, check it out on Twitter. You know where to go, at Ben's Biz. You can find him there at Ben's Biz, and the stuff is up on the site right now as well. Uh, Benjamin Hill, our first-round pick in uh, in the draft of this podcast during draft week. How do you like that? Oh, you guys are so sweet. That was a real nice uh, – I really appreciate that. I always looked at myself as, you know, if I got drafted at all, it would have been – you know, down in one of those rounds that don't even exist anymore, probably as a favor to somebody else. <laughs> that would have been me. I would have hey. been in Mike Piazza's round. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Because someone I know hey. bribed a team to take me or something. Yeah, and then you go on to become the Hall of Famer and the greatest ah, position who ever lived. Think about it. That yeah. would uh, not have been my route. <laughs> I'll, just, I'll just, put, <laughs> just put that out there. The biography would have been Tyler Mon, a perfectly normal 56th rounder. Yeah, Tyler Mon, 71st round pick, flamed out in rookie ball his first year. <laughs> oh, it's more of a God. pamphlet, really. Not so much of a book. Yeah, not more much of, of a, a book. Not much of a book. You can cover it on uh, – it's, it's one side of a, uh, a pamphlet-sized piece of paper. Thanks, Ben. Thank you, Tyler. Thank you, Sam. I'll talk to you next week. Big thanks, everybody, for uh, for joining the show this week. Uh, again, you can find uh, Adam's uh, initiative, Adam Giardino, on Twitter, G-I-A-R-D-I-N-O. You can get all of that information. Ben's story is up on the site uh, about the initiative right now. You can go to MILB.com uh, and read more about that, and it's got pertinent links and information there as well. And a big thanks to, uh, to Adley Rushman for joining us uh, a few segments ago. And we're uh, going to get set to wrap this thing up. But first, Sam has this week's uh, Nationwide Prospect Fun Fact. Yeah, I mean, now that we can call Spencer Torkelson an official minor league prospect, I mean, I know he hasn't signed yet, but he's going to sign, so I'm going to take the opportunity anyway. Um, I wanted to look back into the Arizona State records and bring some guy, some some facts from that to you guys to share. Um, obviously, Spencer Torkelson had his junior year cut short uh, by the coronavirus pandemic, and um, so he fell short of a couple records. But this one stands out to me by far. This one is not affected by coronavirus whatsoever. Uh, Spencer Torkelson was a freshman back in 2018. Obviously makes sense. He was a junior this year. Uh, The previous Arizona State freshman record for home runs was set by none other than Barry Bonds in 1983. He hit 11 home runs that season. Pretty good. Most ever by a Sun Devil in his freshman year. Spencer Torkelson, when he was a freshman, hit 25. (laughs) 
I'm not kidding. The record book goes Spencer Torkelson, 25, Barry Bonds, 11, Mike Kelly, 10, 9, 9, 8. Ike Davis is in there. It's cr- He more than doubled yeah, Barry Bonds' good. freshman record. Yeah, it's pretty, pretty good. good. Uh, it's you know just to go back to it's unfortunate he uh, he did get his season cut short because he finished with 54 home runs in college. The Arizona State record was 56, held by Bob Horner between 1976 and 1978. I know the game is changing. There's a increased value on home runs and power production and focusing on launching the ball and especially in college, which has always been you know teach the small ball move the guy over, hit the ball on the ground, all that kind of stuff. Spencer Torkelson is not that type of player, but it's still astonishing what he was able to do at Arizona State. No matter what his position is, that's why you draft him at number one overall. You dream of making him your number three or number four hitter for years and years and years to come. And if he was able to do that as a freshman, imagine what he can do as a rookie when he finally reaches Detroit. Tigers fans, be excited. You have so much fun stuff in that system. Uh, one of my very best friends uh, in all the world is a, a Tiger fan. He lives just outside of Detroit. And uh, for the last several years, I know it has been rough. But there are, there are systems and there are fan bases that you look at who have not had success for a while. And even if you're not a fan of that team, you just kind of pull for them. You know, the Orioles are that way. The Mariners are that way. Uh, there are a lot of teams that you just look at and you think like, man, those, those fans deserve something fun to get around and Tigers fans have a lot on the way uh, and Spencer Torkelson will be on a, a fast track to Motown and um, with that we will say goodbye for this week's episode of the show before the show but you can get in touch with us podcast at MILB.com uh, you can tweet all of your draft and draft related questions at Sam Dykstra MILB uh, and all of his answers I'm going to change what I said in the first segment they are all binding so if Sam is oh, wrong no. um, you, can, you can voice your issues with that and uh, big thanks everybody for joining us this week he's Sam I'm Tyler we'll talk to you next week Oh, 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 oh,